Welcome to Dispatches, the official podcast for the Journal of the American Revolution. The Journal of the American Revolution publishes weekly online at www.allthingsliberty.com. For the latest in research, reviews, and commentaries, America's Most Important History is available free of charge at the Journal of the American Revolution. So this is an episode that, that tells us that, well, you know, um, that talk about all men being created equal, um, it didn't apply to everyone. That's Journal of the American Revolution contributor Dr. Gregory Irwin discussing George Washington's decision to use the Continental Army to track escaped enslaved peoples after the Battle of Yorktown. And he's our guest today. I'm Brady Kreitzer, and this is Dispatches. This episode of Dispatches is sponsored by Simon & Schuster, publisher of Liberty is Sweet, The Hidden History of the American Revolution by Woody Holton, available now wherever books are sold. Hello ladies and gentlemen and welcome to another episode of Dispatches. I'm your host, Brady Kreitzer. Today our guest is Dr. Gregory Irwin, and he'll be discussing one of the little-known after-effects of the Battle of Yorktown when George Washington transformed the Continental Army into a brigade of slave catchers. We know very well at this point how the British had empowered uh, enslaved men across the South to join their ranks with the promise of freedom. A promise, by the way, which the British delivered to about 60,000 people. We don't know much, however, about the aftermath of that for the people that didn't win their freedom, for the people that didn't escape. George Washington, after the Battle of Yorktown, after the celebrations, after the world turned upside down, commanded the Continental Army to seek out these escaped enslaved peoples, round them up and hold them uh, ignominiously in two pens along the side of the river. That's not an image we like to have of the Battle of Yorktown. Certainly no one was painting that. But history is one of those things. You know, we do ourselves uh, absolutely no favors by only talking about the positive things and ignoring the negative things. History is not black and white as much as we want it to be. History is gray. It's a mix. And as historians, we dive into that gray area when most people rather wouldn't. So sit back, relax, and consider our interview with Greg Irwin. Gregory Irwin, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Brady. Tell us about your background. Well, uh, I'm Ohio-born. Um, I uh, uh, was uh, uh, raised uh, in, in Ohio and uh, didn't really leave the state until I went to Notre Dame to get my uh, Ph.D., uh, and uh, after uh, um, I uh, went through my doctoral studies, in fact, uh, before I finished writing my dissertation, I got my first job at a place called St. Mary of the Plains College uh, in Dodd City, Kansas, teaching U.S. history. Uh, then after a couple of years uh, with Ph.D. finally in hand, I went to a bigger school, the University of Central Arkansas in the town of Conway, about 30 miles outside of Little Rock. And finally, in 1999, I uh, came to Temple University, where I'm a professor of history, and I've also, uh, I guess it's worth noting, uh, been uh, president of the Society of Military History. 
What first drew your interest into this topic? Well, I, I would say that my interest in this topic um, uh, is a result of two phases. Uh, when I was quite young in the 1960s, I saw a documentary on CBS narrated by Bill Cosby called Black History, Lost, Straight, and Stolen. And, and that stuck with me, um, the amount of, of history uh, that gets omitted from the grand narrative dealing with African Americans. And I've always been sensitive when I've run across information, pertinent information about African Americans in my research, uh, not to ignore it. Uh, and then when I was uh, in my doctoral studies at the University of Notre Dame, um, Yale University Press uh, released the uh, translated um, journal of a Hessian officer, Johan Yuld, uh, who uh, was in Virginia uh, in 1781 and uh, uh, wrote uh, about uh, the reaction of the slave population to the British presence, the large numbers of enslaved people uh, who joined uh, the British um, uh, and how the British were glad to have them because this was a way of striking at the enemy's economy and, and punishing uh, richer rebels. And that just, that, 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 Part of the story fascinated me because when most uh, histories of the Revolution turn to Virginia in 1781, they're in a, in a big hurry to get to Yorktown to celebrate George Washington's triumph there. But there were a lot of things that happened in Virginia uh, before uh, that uh, that success, that patriot success, that that tells us um, uh, some important things about the nature of the Revolution and how. Uh, our war for liberty uh, meant liberty for some Americans, but not for others. Gregory, how did enslaved peoples view the American Revolution? That's an excellent question. Um, enslaved people, uh, many of them saw the Revolution as an opportunity uh, to improve their lot. Uh, and how they went about that depended on uh, where they were living and uh, the flow of events. Uh, there were many uh, African Americans uh, who were enslaved who uh, uh, would end up... Uh, um, I'm sorry, I'm, I'm, I'm tripping again. Um, but there were many African Americans, free as well as slave, uh, who sought to their advantage to support uh, the revolution. Uh, a good number of African Americans, up to 5,000, it's estimated, maybe even more, uh, would serve in the Continental Army. Uh, a lot of them were in New England regiments, but, but as the war dragged on and recruiting uh, lagged even further south, where the idea of handing weapons to people of color uh, would seem reckless, uh, because how could you trust them to, to use those weapons on your side? Uh, African-Americans uh, were recruited uh, into continental service. Uh, often um, uh, masters would send them as substitutes, uh, offering to free them if they served to an honorable discharge. Uh, so uh, that, that was part of the black population and its reaction. But uh, a large number of blacks, maybe, maybe more than those who supported the revolution, uh, saw uh, uh, the British as the liberators, uh, there was a belief even before the war uh, that if hostilities commenced, the British would, would free slaves uh, to punish uh, uh, rebellious whites. Uh, and so uh, a good number of, of 
blacks fled to the British. Uh, slavery existed everywhere um, in the North as well. So this was happening uh, in New York and New Jersey, etc. But when the British um, brought the war to the South, uh, to Georgia, but especially South Carolina and then Virginia, they were astounded by the number of blacks who uh, turned out uh, to, to join them uh, and, and to seek their protection. Uh, so, um, as I say, uh, many African Americans, like a lot of white Americans, uh, saw this uh, conflict as a way to improve their lot. Gregory, in your article, one source claims that a British victory would have been the end of slavery in America. Was that source right? Well, it, it's hard to to make predictions, but uh, the the war uh, was weakening slavery in uh, many parts of the country. Uh, as I mentioned, large numbers of enslaved people uh, fled to the British in South Carolina and, and Virginia. Uh, the British uh, were willing to uh, protect, uh, especially uh, the slaves uh, who belonged to their enemies. Uh, by the time Lord Cornwallis got to Virginia, however, he wasn't discriminating. Uh, he would protect both uh, uh, rebel slaves and, and loyalist slaves. Um, the, the governor of Virginia toward the end of Cornwallis's campaign, Thomas Nelson, wrote him a letter saying, Were there, was there any circumstances under which my constituents can recover their slave property? And Cornwallis wrote a very polite note in return uh, and said, well, sure, uh, if a planter uh, is uh, not uh, in arms or in league against the king, if he promises to to respect uh, uh, British rule, uh, he can come into camp and he can uh, collect his slaves. Uh, and, and this is an exact quote from Cornwallis, provided they are willing to go with him. So if Cornwallis had prevailed, I imagine there would have been an awful lot of Virginia blacks who would have said, no, we don't want to go back. <laughs> to our masters, and that would have confronted the British uh, with a problem. Okay, what are we going to do with these people? Um, uh, we, we, don't, you know, what, we, we don't want to alienate them because we can count on them. <laughs> They're a loyal part of the population. But on the other hand, the complications that this would have um, created, um, um, how you would have reconciled uh, defeated white Americans with this, this new order, even if it just prevailed in, in, in a few states rather than many. Also, how it would have gone over with the British government, which was uh, deriving uh, healthy incomes from islands in the West Indies, uh, where slavery was an integral part of the economy. So it, it, if the British had won, especially in view of, of what happened between 1779 and 1781, um, it would have been um, it would have been complicated. How did British attitudes toward enslaved peoples evolve throughout the war? When, when uh, the revolution starts, um, there, there really isn't uh, an official British policy uh, concerning American slaves. There are some individuals, though. Um, Lord Dunmore, who's governor of Virginia, uh, he uh, sees uh, the people of his colony drifting toward the, the rebellion. And he starts making noises about, uh, in effect, uh, 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 raising a slave rebellion. You know, if, if, you, if you don't uh, uh, 
remain loyal to the king, then I'm going to arm your slaves <laughs> and use them as soldiers, which was every uh, slaveholder's worst nightmare. Um, and, uh, but, uh, and that helped to accelerate uh, Virginia's embrace uh, of the rebellious cause. But uh, other commanders, uh, there was a young officer up in Boston during the siege in 1775 named John Graves Simcoe, an ambitious young man, and he saw all these free blacks in Boston, and he thought, boy, you know, wouldn't it be good to put them uh, uh, to use uh, serving the king? So he proposed uh, forming a black raiding uh, band uh, to go after various American coastal towns along the New England coast, but his superior shut that down. His superior shut that down. Uh, the British uh, try to keep away from uh, uh, raising black troops. Uh, there are going to be some exceptions uh, on a small scale in different parts of the South, but they were afraid that that would just uh, drive a lot of fence-sitters uh, into the arms of the rebels and would make the rebels fight even harder. But once they get in the South, slaves are liberating themselves. The slaves aren't giving the British a chance. Uh, to uh, make uh, decisions uh, concerning their destiny for them, they're taking they're taking, uh, they're taking uh, uh, their destiny uh, in their own hands, um, and um, the British realize well um, there are a lot of uh, rebel ma masters or, or, or enslavers who have deserted their property, who have fled. Uh, we uh, want to get the economy, the local economy going again, so we can uh, put these, uh, these runaways to work on abandoned plantations. Uh, they, they can earn a wage, they can support themselves, uh, the army won't have to worry about feeding them, but at the same time, it's a way of uh, creating a new social order. And some uh, British officers, I mean, a lot of these uh, uh, fugitive slaves went to work for the British army. Uh, they became what the British called pioneers, what we would today call combat engineers, uh, people that they used to uh, clear away obstructions and build fortifications. Um, they used them as, as stevedores. They were employed by almost every what the British called public department in their army, uh, the artillery uh, or ordnance uh, commissary department, which gathered food, the quartermaster's uh, department, which moved, uh, moved supplies. And some of the officers who, who, who dealt with, with these people uh, grew attached to them. Uh, there are letters as the war's coming down to an end from these officers saying, look, these people fled to us uh, seeking our protection. They rendered good service, uh, and we are obligated to when we leave, to take them with us, not to leave them to the mercy of their masters. The last British commander-in-chief uh, in North America, Sir Guy Carleton, he uh, replaced uh, Sir Henry Clinton after Yorktown. Uh, the treaty ending the revolution, the Treaty of Paris uh, of 1783, contained a clause obligating the British to return runaway slaves. This was signed by British and American diplomats. Carleton began compiling a list of slaves at New York, uh, wh where they came from, who their who their owners were, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Uh, more than three thousand names, uh, so he'd have a record of who he was going to turn over to George Washington. And Washington kept pressuring him, saying, "When are you going to live up to the treaty? When are you going to live up to the treaty?" And at at at, at the at the very end, Carlton said, "I just can't do this." <laughs> he was 
not going to return these people to bondage, and he will transport them to Nova Scotia. He will defy his own government. He will defy that treaty because turning those slaves over to their former owners, he just considered inhumane. Greg, how did Americans view the war in relation to its enslaved population? Well, you know, uh, the the uh, people who uh, will help uh, bring about the revolution, they worried, of course, um, as things escalated before or shots were even fired, how the British government would react. Uh, I mean, after the, the Boston Tea Party, the British government uh, closed out representative government in Massachusetts, sent reinforcements to Boston, established martial law, and, and there was a fear that the British might go even further. Uh, since uh, uh, 1772, when, when, when the Chief, Just, Chief Justice uh, in England, Lord Mansfield, decided a case saying that slavery could no longer be legal in, in England. You could not keep slaves in England. Uh, in the empire, that was a different matter, but not in England. Uh, a number of slave owners in America, because they were suspicious of anything the British government was doing, thought, aha, they are telegraphing their intention. They mean to take slavery away from us. And that was on the minds of uh, a lot of Americans, uh, among other grievances and anxieties, as we drifted into open rebellion. I won't say that was as important to everybody as it was to others, but it was part of the mix of, 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 of uh, as I say, uh, um, uh, you know, conspiracy theories and, and uh, suspicions, uh, um, you know, they were afraid that the British wanted to force Catholicism on the 13 colonies because of the Quebec Act. There were all kinds of all kinds of uh, uh, rumors going around, and and that was part of it. Uh, John Adams mentions it in his diary. Uh, there, there's uh, when uh, James Madison is out of Virginia. Some of his correspondents, some of the folks at home are nervous about that. Uh, and when Lord Dunmore, um, uh, the royal governor of Virginia, actually moves to turn slaves into soldiers to fight against their masters, uh, then a lot of revolutionaries say, aha, uh, you know, this is what they were, the British were planning all, all along, all the more reason for us to be free uh, from such people. Because, um, you know, in order to live with slave Free. Uh, slave uh, owners or enslavers had to convince themselves that slaves were not only inferior, but they were dangerous. That because of their African uh, uh, lineage, that there was something inherently savage in them. And if, if you didn't keep them under control, if you didn't keep them slaves, they would rise up and they would try to wipe out the white population, and you would have this horrible race war, and either the whites would be wiped out or the blacks would be wiped out. Thomas Jefferson, who wrestled with the dilemma of slavery, it pained him in many ways. You know, in the end, he's going to decide, no, we, 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 can't, we can't end slavery because, as he put it, we have the wolf by the ear. I mean, it's such a, such a vivid image. If you pick up a wolf by the ear, you can't afford to let it go because when you do, wolfie will tear out your throat. And he was, in effect, saying... You know that's the analogy he was using for slaves. We've got them, and and we just can't we just can't let our hold slip. It's a matter of life and death. Greg, talk about Washington's orders regarding escaped enslaved peoples after the Battle of Yorktown. Why did he order them to be rounded up? 
Well, uh, when, when after the siege ends, there are an awful lot of African-Americans, an awful lot of escaped slaves in and around Yorktown. Uh, Cornwallis turned a lot of them out of his lines uh, uh, to... Um, make sure his troops' rations didn't run out. But there were still a couple thousand within Yorktown, too. But they're, they're in the no-man's land. They're, they're uh, in the bulrushes along the York River. Uh, they're wandering around. They're on the other side of the river uh, at, at uh, Gloucester and the area around that. Uh, and uh, you know, Washington comes under pressure from Virginia state authorities uh, uh, to round up these people. I mean, uh, uh, they represented a sizable investment um, uh, by uh, Virginia whites. Uh, they were a major manifestation of their wealth. I mean, a planter calculated his wealth uh, by the amount of land he owned and the number of hands he had to work it. Uh, uh, so uh, uh, enslavers uh, wanted their slaves back. And uh, Washington, um, you know, he's, he's working for a government that, that – uh, uh, certainly doesn't want to offend uh, the uh, powerful and rich southern states by not attending to such an important interest. Washington himself is a slave owner. Washington himself is a Virginian. Uh, and if he didn't uh, uh, order the roundup of the, uh, of the uh, slaves that had fled to the British, uh, he would have been in all kinds of trouble. Um, you know, Congress would have been on his back. Uh, the Virginia state government would have, been, would have been on his back, and he would it would be persona non grata. Um, so uh, he uh, issues orders that uh, uh, any any uh, blacks or and he used the word mulattoes, people of mixed race, uh, found in the area. His troops were to round them up and take them to uh, a fortification, uh, one fortification, a redoubt on the. Uh, south side of the York River, the Yorktown side, and another on the north side, the Gloucester side, which was also a British outpost before the surrender, and, and keep them uh, there until uh, um, they could be reclaimed by the people who uh, who had uh, had um, uh, you know could could prove uh, prove ownership at least uh, you know under the uh, to the satisfaction of, of Virginia Virginia law. Um, so um, he he uh, issues issues that order a few days after the uh, after the British surrender. Uh, he had already issued orders during the siege that if any blacks came out of the British lines, they were to be rounded up and kept in isolation. Because when the British came into Virginia, they they helped to uh, spread the uh, smallpox epidemic that had been raging uh, throughout uh, North America from the start of the revolution. Uh, I mean, they're going through rural areas that hadn't been exposed to certain germs. And so it's one of the great ironies that uh, uh, many of these, of these African-Americans would sicken and die as a result of, of, of contact with, with the uh, soldiers that they hailed as liberators. It wasn't deliberate. It was just, you know, uh, that, that happened uh, when um, armies moved around uh, uh, during during the war, including uh, the Continental Army. Uh, it was um, you know, often spread, this disease. Uh, well, that's one reason why Washington uh, was so insistent about inoculating his troops to preserve their lives, but also to keep them from contaminating the populace as well. How effective and maybe enthusiastic were these soldiers during this pretty tragic event? Do we know? 
Yeah, um, you know, uh, most Connell soldiers didn't, uh, uh, at least enlisted men, didn't leave diaries, didn't leave journals, didn't write memoirs. But one, Joseph Plum Martin, uh, who uh, wrote the most complete first-person account of any of the enlisted men who served under Washington, he, he talked about this. And he didn't refer to Washington's order. Uh, of course, he's writing decades after the fact. But he talked about slave owners coming to the troops and offering them rewards to help with the apprehension of their slaves. And, you know, Martin's pretty callous about it. Okay, you know, we took their money. Uh, I mean, he, they didn't seem to be all that impressed with the slave owners, but, but continental, uh, continental uh, uh, soldiers weren't well paid. Uh, and often when they were paid, their money wasn't worth much because it was paper money. So um, uh, at least uh, from Martin's account, they were, they were willing to augment their income by doing this. How does this article help us to understand the revolutionary era better? Well, I think the article, uh, it helps to complicate our picture of what was going on back then. The revolution is our founding myth, and we tend to sanitize it because, uh, uh, you know, Americans take a great deal of pride in their country, and they like to think that it began under pristine circumstances conceived by, by uh, you know, this idealistic rhetoric uh, uh, that was uh, written by the founders, Jefferson and others. And, um, you know, uh, we're dealing with human beings, and, and human beings uh, in, in the 18th century, just like today, they had their faults. Uh, they might say things uh, that sounded good, and they may have uh, believed some of what they were saying, but, you know, just like politicians today, the politicians of the 18th century, their public pronouncements were aimed at uh, uh, rallying uh, public support and impressing uh, um, you know, uh, foreign powers that might be of use to the United States. So this is an episode. So that, that tells us that, well, you know, um, that talk about all men being created equal, um, it didn't apply to everyone. Uh, the people who, who said that, uh, you know, were willing to exclude one out of every five uh, Americans. Uh, that was the black population uh, in what became the United States in 1775, 1783. One fifth of the population was black, and uh, you know they're they're consigned to non-personhood. Uh, on the other hand, um, like other Americans, African Americans wanted a lot of the same things. They wanted to be free. Uh, they wanted a better li li life uh, uh, for themselves and for their children, and they will take advantage of the opportunities that come their way uh, to achieve that. Uh, one of the um, uh, more touching stories that I uncovered was about uh, a 22-year-old uh, mixed-blood man from Richmond named uh, Harry who ran away with his two-year-old son and managed to, to travel several hundred miles uh, from Richmond to, to, to Williamsburg to, to Portsmouth and I don't know but by what route to, to, to Yorktown. And, you know, he's in this throng of people. Uh, he, he, he's living catch-as-catch-can. I don't know if he had a job or not. He keeps that boy alive. 
He keeps that boy alive despite the fact that he's living in the middle of, of, a, of an epidemic, you know, smallpox. He keeps that boy alive during one of the most horrific artillery bombardments uh, of the 18th century. And the last thing that history knows about him was that after the British surrendered, he slipped away with that boy. Um, hopefully they reached freedom, but they, they you know, they, 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 uh, um, no, no, there's no longer historical record uh, about, about them, Harry and his son, Jerry. But that story, uh, I think is something that any American, uh, should, uh, should savor because it, it it points to an impulse that whatever the deficiencies of the revolution, the Americans of that day and those who came after insisted that this country live up to those ideals. And if you know the progress that we've made over the last two and a half uh, uh, two and a half centuries is due to people like that, uh, who said you know there should be a reality to that rhetoric. Gregory Irwin, thank you for joining us. My pleasure. Thank you. The music played in this episode included works by Kevin McLeod and the Sturbridge Colonial Militia. Any unauthorized reproduction or use of this podcast, without the express written permission of the Journal of the American Revolution, is strictly prohibited. For everyone here at Dispatches, I'm Brady Kreitzer saying so long.